Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On this episode of The Booze Hustle, I talk with Chris Riesbeck, Chief Commercial Officer for Barrel Craft Spirits. Barrel has an award-winning and diverse portfolio of spirits. Uh, They specialize in things like whiskeys and rums that have unique finishes. Prior to working at Barrel, Chris served as the Vice President of Sales for Westland Distillery in Seattle, preaching the gospel of American single malt whiskey and really played a crucial role in establishing their reputation as a leading producer of American single malt in the U.S., He's a two-time recipient of Whiskey Magazine's Icons of Whiskey, highly commended brand ambassador of the year for his work at Westland, as well as his tenure with Gordon and McPhail. In 2015, he was awarded the title Keeper of the Quick in Scotland. Uh, I definitely mangled that, so I'm so sorry to the Scottish. Uh, And is the youngest American to hold such a title. If you're an industry person or someone who's looking to get insights into the supplier world, this episode's definitely for you. Chris shares his insights into today's craft spirits landscape, and he even opens up about what it's like being a fairly young executive, and that yes, even he sometimes gets imposter syndrome now and again. I've known Chris for a really long time, and he's a really smart and interesting guy. Also, he's incredibly patient, as my small child decided to keep busting into the room while we were recording, so that was fun. Um, So I hope you enjoy the episode, and uh, cheers. I love talking to people that are like in the same side of business as me because you're punctual, you're concerned about like the process. You follow the instructions to a fucking T. <laughs> I well, I mean, on the other side of it, I love when people send very clear direction of like what they're <laughs> asking for. I, I remember we did one of those like management things at Westland years ago, and it was like they were like, "What type of person are you, and what type of person do you want to be managed by?" Mm-hmm. And I remember like being like, "Oh, well, I don't like to be managed." And it turns out I actually really like good, clean management. They were like, "Oh, you would have been a great copper in the military," and I was like, Ugh. "Man, I would not have picked that." <laughs> <laughs> I like structure, but like I don't want to think that I like structure. No, like I feel like just being in sales or in management for a while, like you t- you deal with so many people that you just get like exhausted by disorganization yeah. and people that talk in circles and that are not clear and concise so like i i get it yeah just, there's like, just so much time yeah <laughs> yeah it's like i have you know on a good day on a really good day where everything's clean i can get about 2 to 3 hours of like unique work done because the remainder of the time is just mop up daddy duty effectively <laughs> <laughs> mop up daddy 
Body Duty. Um, well, for our listeners who are going to think that you're in a very different industry talking about mop-up daddy duty, <laughs> I guess we'll, <laughs> you should probably introduce yourself. So I do an intro at the beginning of the episode so you don't have to get like, too in-depth. But if you want to say hi to everybody um, and say what you do and who you are, that'd be great. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Riesbeck. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Barrel Craft Spirits based out of Louisville, Kentucky. Awesome. I have a question for you. Um, what other spirits does Barrel produce? Because I know that I'm most familiar with whiskey, but your company is called Barrel Craft Spirits. Like what, what other spirits do they make? Yeah. So Barrel Craft Spirits is obviously pretty heavily invested in the bourbon, rye, and blended whiskey space, along with producing rums. So we, mm-hmm. we've got a number of products that use rum. Uh, and we also have a secondary brand called Stellum Spirits that's sort of based around more classic reimagining of like, you know, the, the mash bills of yesteryear kind of thing. The mash bills of yesteryear. Yeah, oh it was. The, <laughs> it was <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there's a there's a little bit there of, uh, you know, wanting to wanting to sort of differentiate it from what barrel is, you know, barrels all about big, intensive flavors, right? It's about, you know, if you look at some of the things that have been sort of highly regarded from barrel, things like, you know, Dovetail or Seagrass or Vantage, Mm -hmm. these big blended whiskeys that are then, you know, finished in a variety of casts, like these flavors are intensive. With Stellum, it was more about just trying to showcase what the the sort of the raw spirit could be Mm -hmm. when not being forced to say, well, it all has to come from one distillery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When you say like mash bills of yesteryear, I start thinking of like, um, like a witch's potion book, <laughs> like Eye of Newt, <laughs> a couple bushels of like local corn. <laughs> oh, so man. Funny. Yeah. That's and cool, I mean, it, yeah. And it's it's fun because it allows our blending team, which we have a blending team of three, which is a little unique. So I think a lot of producers probably have like a single person that manages their blending program because we have three people that that handle all of our blending. You really do get a different perspective from each of them. And they're all, you know, three fairly different ages, three pretty different backgrounds. So I, you know, I would, I tend to be a pretty firm believer that like taste is relative to your past, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you grew up eating a lot of like orchard fruits, you're going to be more sensitive to those things. If you grew up eating a lot of like really heavily processed food, you're going to be more sensitive to some of those kind of flavors. And I actually think that's a really important part of a blending team or blending anything is you want to make sure that the the profiles that you're able to pull through aren't so homogenized because the blending team all has the same perspective. But I wonder if like they they like run into any roadblocks, like when your palette or your background is so different and everyone maybe has a very different like perspective on where they want something to go. Do they struggle with that? Because it's like it's the analogy, like too many cooks in the kitchen. Is there any is there any aspect of that happening? Well, there's still a hierarchy. So I think there's there's always sort of an assumed hierarchy of like someone has to have final blend approval. And that always ends up with Joe Beatrice, who's our owner. But I think at this point, they've been working together, Nick, Tripp, and Joe, who are our blending team. They've mm-hmm. been working together long enough now to have a real sense of what each other's likes and sort of like non-likes are. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, it does seem like they all want whiskey that has backbone they all want whiskey that has depth of flavor you know it's not just sort of this massive intensive one note thing that comes up front and then it just like kind of fizzles out Mm -hmm. they really like to showcase things that when you're you're kind of done sipping the liquid it just sort of sits and it resonates and you can continue to taste it Mm -hmm. now for our listeners that are not familiar with barrel will you walk them through a little bit about the origins of barrel and, and like conceptually like just a little bit about what you guys are doing there. 
Yeah, so barrel started back in 2013, which if you think about how different the American whiskey or sort of the whiskey landscape is from 2013 today, they're, they're almost unrecognizable for good and bad reasons, I would kind of argue. But, you know, back in 2013, the idea of doing everything at cast strength, you know, and being a non-distilling producer and sort of a, a proud non-distilling producer or an NDP or a blender, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. was really different. I mean, I laugh now because there are people out there that have shirts now that says sourcing is not a crime. Mm-hmm. When 2013, I mean, it was there was the sort of heyday of like, well, you're not making your own liquid. That's not right. cool. We don't want to do that. And barrel yeah. really had to be the sort of the first major producer to kind of run through that brick wall and say, no, actually, a blender can do a variety of things that a distillery can. I, you know, I've, I'm really fortunate. I come from a background where I've worked at an independent bottler in Scotland. I've worked at a distillery in Seattle and now here at Barrel, and I've gotten to see the perspective of how unique that is for all three parts of the industry. And when I look at something like Barrel, you realize that they were really early in that space, really aggressively Mm -hmm. sort of pushing the boundaries to say, no, it's okay to do this. Not only is it okay, but arguably you can find more unique profiles here by being less tied to a single point of origin style whiskey than what a distillery could do on a regular basis. I mean, e- right. even just the cast strength thing, you know, you're in the industry as well. You look back 10 years ago, the the sort of fanfare around cast strength whiskeys didn't exist the way it does today. Sure. I think you were just starting to see it in scotch whiskey where independent bottlers, the fact that everything they did was, you know, cast strength, but then most of the sort of original bottlings coming from the major distilleries were all at like 40 or 43. That was a huge point of differentiation for the hardcore whiskey consumer. And over time, that has clearly made the leap into American whiskey now where non-cast strength, you have to almost sort of justify why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I actually, I made a really interesting, <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting or stupid, but I made an analogy. I was teaching a whiskey seminar the other night and this topic did come up the topic of blending and sourced um, whiskey as opposed to making your own. And I made the analogy because it's the simplest way to explain it is like if I was a chef and I was a chef on a French chateau and I could only use locally sourced fruits and grains and cheese, the food I make is always going to be pretty similar and I don't have as many cool things to to work with. But, you know, the food is the food. It's, this is what we eat here. But if I'm a chef in New York City and I have access to literally everything in the world, my food might be a little bit more interesting. So it's kind of the similar, uh, you know, I guess it's a similar draw a line to like blending is if you're able to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and make really unique, interesting offerings. Um, it is a lot like cooking. It's very cool. I mean, genuinely, like, take your analogy even a step further. The the early part of that is, so you're a chef that can only use things localized. Imagine if you're a chef that can only use things that they grow themselves. Right. You know, I mean, even more hyper-localized. And the argument is, you know, I, I think we've made the assumption in this industry, and wrongfully, that being a great maker of distillate makes you a great blender of distillates. And mm-hmm. I would argue those are dramatically different things. I, I mean, the person that makes the paint at the art store may or may not be a great artist. They might right. not know how to utilize the things sure. or have the creativity to make them sort of specialized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I'm going to steal that one for my next uh, whiskey seminar. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, enough about Barrel. I'm interested in, in learning about you. And I know this is like, it's tough, I think, for people that work on your side of the business. 
we're we're usually because I because I work in the same kind of business as you we're usually used to like taking kind of like a back seat and pushing and promoting our brand and being brand specific all the time and not talking about ourselves but for the purpose of this podcast um, I talk to people about where they come from so I'm really interested in like your background um, like where you grew up and um, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up and how is it different than today? Yeah, it well dramatically would be the understatement of the week. So I I grew up in or I was born in Connecticut, but I would argue that I grew up in the Midwest. So born here in Waterbury, Connecticut, and I still live in Connecticut today. But for a majority of what I would call my formative years, I lived in Ohio and Michigan and actually ended up going back out there for college after my family moved back to New England for the remainder of my sort of high school years. So I I now consider myself a proud New Englander. I really mm-hmm. love New England. I Frankly, it it would be difficult to think about living somewhere else, but there was a time in my life, and I'd like to think a lot of my sensibilities are pretty Midwestern at at a basic level. I try to be pretty thoughtful in sort of what I do and what I think about, but boy, in in terms of what I thought I was going to be versus what I am today, I... I remember there was a distinct moment sort of like my junior year of high school being like, I'm going to be a lawyer. Like, that's what I want to be. I think Mm -hmm. that would be really interesting. And then getting to college and like immediately not enjoying any of the classes that would have been like a (laughs) pre-law track. So I I, I can remember it clear as day. I took a class. I went to, uh, I did my undergraduate work at the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, which a lot of love for that university really turned me into the thinker that I am today, better or worse. And I took an intro to philosophy class with a guy named Dr. Henry Cruzman, Hank Cruzman. And man, I remember just being like, oh, there's a there's a whole line of thought out there about how to be a critical thinker. There's a whole universe about not necessarily looking for the answer to one plus one equals X. There is a whole universe about how to become a critical thinker and to apply that to all things. And, you know, Got out of school and I, I I had a kind of a weird track there where Worcester has a pretty well-recognized senior flagstar or capstone program called their independent thesis program or their independent study. And I was really interested in biomedical ethics at the time and hmm. wrote my senior thesis on redefining an argument for restricted active euthanasia, which feels like a really heavy topic, but it was really interesting at the time of, you know, what is... What is the moral thing to allow people for personal choice in those sort of like most difficult moments? Mm-hmm. Um, and was like, you know, I think I could make a career out of this. Maybe I'll go see if I can work in hospital administration. And then very quickly and rightfully so now as a 39-year-old can recognize this, but went to some of these things and it was a mixture of like pharmaceutical jobs mm-hmm. or hospital jobs. And like they don't hire 20-something-year-olds to make those decisions. And nor should they, because I think <laughs> the things that I think about that I think I knew about the world in my 20s versus what I know in my I oh, mean, light, yeah. night and day, just a, yep. a completely wildly big difference. But mm-hmm. I came back from college to Connecticut to see my family and pretty quickly kind of fell in love with wine and the wine and spirits. And I'd run a bar in college, but it was a draft bar. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything that like you needed any sort of like professional understanding of wine and spirits to run unless like, you know, being able to pull a 12 ounce pour and not have a ton of foam was a, a desirable <laughs> skill. It's but a special skill. I mean, <laughs> I guess so. But I, you know, I was working at this sort of fine dining restaurant in Avon, Connecticut. I ended up meeting my wife there, my now wife there. And which one? Uh, Boss Kitchen and Wine Bar, which was on, I want to say Hot Meadow Road, like sort of okay. between 
like 10 and 44 in Avon. Okay. And it was great. And (laughs) I think it is a tequila bar, which feels like such a natural evolution of things that it would be a tequila bar. But I, I fell in love with wine. And actually my first job in the industry was in the wine industry. I, I got my very first job working for Gallo and I cut my teeth there for exactly six months. I, I, I got an offer after about six months to go work at Slocum and Sons, which obviously you'll be familiar with. And Mm -hmm. it was one of these funny things that I remember when I got the offer from Slocum, I called one of my dad's friends who had been in the wine industry for years And I remember asking him, I was like, you know, I seem to be doing really well at Gallo, but I'm not sure that this is the type of wine that I want to be focused on. Because Gallo's wine book back then was very different from the wine book it is today. It was way Mm -hmm. less premiumized than it is now. And I remember coming out of that conversation and he said something so basic, but really has informed my decision making for the last 15 years, which is if tomorrow morning your manager said you were in the bowling ball business, would you be excited? And I said, no. And he said, then it's time to leave. Yeah. Yeah. You're, and, you're like me. We can't sell widgets. Like I'm not, I can't. I'm good at sales, but like I have to be passionate about what I'm selling or I have to be interested in what I'm selling enough that I can like channel that out into the world in a genuine way because yeah. I can't get behind things I don't like. Not even that I don't like but I, that I don't all, myself believe in. Um, and, and so listeners, this is actually how I know Chris, because we worked <laughs> at the same distributor, but not, but not at the same time, like completely different We're like times. two ships passing in the night, two ships passing. But I feel like it bonded us together because the experience of working at that place, um, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to explain it. It was it an was interesting an, time. <laughs> it was an interesting time. It's an, in, 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 so just for those of you who are not in the industry, um, in the United States, it, there's a three-tier system. So you have like the winery or the distillery that then sells to a distributor locally. And then that distributor's job is to get it into the market like via a sales force. So they go to um, liquor stores or wine shops or whatever. So um, depending on where you live, the distributor can be very large like Southern or it can be really tiny, like, um, you know, like in Connecticut, there's a bajillion smaller distributors. So the one that Chris and I worked at um, was small to midsize, but I mean, pretty on the, pretty I, much I would on the say small by size. this industry standards, like midsize based on some of the brands that were there. Well, okay. By brand standards, midsize, but by workforce size, I'd say very small. Um, but they had, I would, I would say arguably the best fine wine book in the state and one of the best craft spirits books in the state. And there was a level of intensity that went along with that. (laughs) So I feel like we both were forged in the fire of intense old school sales, uh, sales rooms where there was a lot of like, Get out there, you fucking idiot. <laughs> there was a lot of like, you knew you were okay if you were heckled on a semi-regular basis. Like I yeah. I remember being like, I remember the first couple of months there being like, oh man, I'm not sure if these people really dislike me or really like me. And then one of the the sort of old guard sales reps pulled me aside and he's like, nah, everyone seems to really like you. And I was like, boy, not sure I would have picked up on that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I tell people all the time, like, um, anytime someone tries to warn me about like a tough customer or someone, I'm just like, listen, not only did I have a Sicilian father, but I also reported to like a six foot seven former football player uh, who, who, could ran, bark. who ran a, a distributor with an iron fist. Um, I have the thickest skin of all. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I, And in this industry, you and I both know that 
that is, I would argue, of all the skills, you can be great at math, you can be charismatic, you can be funny, but actually being able to take a no and analyze it, understand why, and then come back to fight another day, Mm -hmm. easily the most important skill you can have. Yeah, and it's you never accept the first no either because it's the no is the starting point. That's exactly it. You, you remember it's when you when you deal with management that can be difficult in the beginning, and you know the person that we're speaking about, I have an enormous amount of love for because I look at a lot of what I've achieved in my career, and frankly, the iron sharpen iron approach really was impactful for me because mm-hmm. I needed someone that challenged me to say, no, don't do that, and here's why, but come back with a better reason for doing it or a better execution strategy and we'll make it work. And that was always sort of the way that we did things at that house. The very basic blocking and tackling skills that I consider really elementary in a career, I am always astonished now how few people know how to price, recognize FOB, build in strategy for pricing, you know, and understanding those things. And it, it, it's become a thing where like you almost can tell like if someone's going to be career track for sales at the account level versus someone that's going to be a management track person because management track requires like you need to be at a basic level of finance person. You need to understand the finance of the industry. You need to understand how the story and the margin impacts all work together to create something compelling. Because if you can't do that, if all you can do is say, well, this is why it's delicious, buy it now, you're <laughs> probably going to run out of steam pretty quickly. Yeah. And you know what's what's interesting? Like, um, we're going to make this podcast about me now, but uh, <laughs> really, this is like my therapy session. So I, I have always fought. Um, I am an artist by nature. I went to school for writing. And I keep getting, I feel like a ball that gets, keeps getting moved along against my will by people who think, see more in me than I see in myself. Because like, if you had asked me years ago, like about management, I would have been like, absolutely not. Um, when the person that ran that distributor promoted me against my will, it was always like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. And he's just like, you're going to be great at it. And it was just a matter of like, I don't want to, ugh. And I am not a finance person, but over the years I've had enough people be like, well, you're intelligent and you can do it. If you don't like it, that's another thing. And like kind of begrudgingly accepted more responsibility until I get ran because you're right. There are not as many people, I think, who have the aptitude or the natural ability to do both things really well. So if you, I think if they, if you even have like a little bit of an inkling of a um, business acumen, people are like, nope, we're going to develop it. We're going to work on it. We'll, we'll, We'll get there. The other stuff you can't teach somebody. You know what I mean? Yep. I am. I, I will tell you in my hiring, when I bring people aboard at any company that I've worked at historically at this point now, like the there are two things. And God, this seems this is going to you're going to giggle. One of them you'll probably get, but one of them might be a bit of a surprise. The, there's two things I look for on resumes. One is like, have they been in some sort of fraternal or... Um, uh, you know, organization, I don't mean that as a male, female thing, but like, have they been in, you know, Girl Scouts? Have they been in Boy Scouts? Have they put their time in there? Have they learned how to be a part of a team and, and like aspire mm. to do good things? Are they charitable? Do they have interests outside of the industry? But the other thing is like, have you worked wholesale? Because in my mind, it not having worked wholesale and then jumping into a supplier job to a degree, and don't get me wrong, there's always going to be the exceptions to the rule here. Mm-hmm. It's like, it would be like me showing up to Red Sox spring training and being like, yeah, I just want to take a couple of cracks at the uh, 
the batting cages here. It's like, no, being a supplier requires that you have an innate understanding of all of the tiers that encompass this business. And I think it's mm-hmm. really difficult to make that transition if you've not spent some time looking at those things. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I'm sorry to our listeners who are like not in this side of the business. They're probably like, they're like, what the fuck are these people talking about? <laughs> but it's for those of you who talking. are in I feel our business. like they should expect some of this to a certain degree. <laughs> it can't all be me just like making fun of myself and talking about booze all the time. Well, I'm, I'm interested to know, like, because obviously your job is you have a big job. Um, and before that, you were at Westland. Tell me a little bit about what you were doing at Westland before this and what yeah, Westland so I, is. I, I so Westland's an American single malt distillery based in Seattle, Washington. So one of the wonderful things about the Pacific Northwest, of which there are a multitude, is that it's one of the great sort of regions for growing barley. And while this country has really sort of fallen into the bourbon and rye or American whiskey and everything else is not, mm-hmm. the reality is, is that whiskey is an agricultural good and it should follow along the trend line of what agricultural systems exist in their localized geography. So when I was at Westland for just about six years, um, one of the, the sort of major things there was about trying to promote this concept of local agriculture and what made it specialized. And I, I started as the Eastern U.S. regional manager. And by the time I left, I was the VP of sales and global commercial director. So I got to see the business from a what I would consider now like a pretty hyper localized Eastern U.S. perspective where trying to sell craft local Washington in the Eastern US was easier said than done. Mm -hmm. But then ironically, getting to be lucky enough to launch that in a number of European countries and um, out in Japan, and seeing that there is this whole mindset out there where it's like, well, no, whiskey everywhere else in the world. And, And for listeners, if you're not familiar with this, this is like a hear me and hear me loudly, like whiskey in the rest of the world is barley. It is single malt for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. There is some level of of other grain whiskey out there, but let's be transparent. It is heavily favored in the view of single malt because, you know, Scotch whiskey sort of dominated the world for so long that mm-hmm. people have just kind of come to expect that that's what's going to be produced. Mm-hmm. And I I look back on that time at Westland as just being so formative to my thinking about what does it mean to be a good steward? Mm-hmm. I Being a good business should not be the exclusive mountaintop for any executive in this industry. Being a good steward should be, which is, are you fostering creativity amongst your teams? Are you pushing the boundaries of your industry? Are you trying to do things that make improvements that you are not the sole beneficiary of? I think that's what being a good executive, being a good manager, being a good steward is. And that is a very easy thing to say, but in practice, actually quite difficult to achieve because Mm. mindfulness is the huge part of that. You have to sit and think, how am I making the people that are around me better? How am I making this a more compelling product for the trade? Is this making people more excited about an industry they are already passionate about. And that's that doesn't even begin to take into account the myriad of of sort of like social and cultural impacts of being in the premium alcohol space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. I think that's true in a lot of industries. And, and we get so disconnected from that because I think people get very myopic about their career and where they are in their lives and how much money they make. And then they forget that there's like this whole system around it. And there's a whole 
planet around it that, that's, that is affected by our unique choices. So that's, that's a great point. I'm interested to know, like, you know, what, what you do. I, I mean, it's so hard because I know you don't have time for a lot of things, but what are you doing outside of work? Like any unique hobbies, anything interesting that you work on when I, you're not? I mean, my three <laughs> biggest hobbies will be this until the day they put me into a pine box, which is I love my dogs. I love my wife and I love fly fishing. Those have, Aww. those have been my three favorite things and they will continue to be my three favorite things for the foreseeable future. I, you know, we, we fortunate. I've actually got one of our little puppies here. We just got two new rescue dogs, uh, Cosmo and Stella, which Cosmo is a little Jack Russell kitchen sink mix kind of dog. Nice. And he's just wild and fun yeah. and exciting. And Stella's this really somber, sweet little bulldog or, uh, uh, pit bull shih tzu sort of mix. And she's just she's... got like these big soulful eyes and she's sweet as a button. And, Aww. you know, my wife and I just love being with them. You of all people having a family will get this, but like you spend so much intense time on the phone in the market, Mm -hmm. you want soft moments. I crave soft, quiet moments because I am not a quiet person in work. My wife, bless her, deals with me being loud in a relatively small house (laughs) with like Zoom calls 90, you know, I people forget, but I'm at the stage of my career here now for better or worse that I don't do a ton of road time as much Mm -hmm. as I used to, where like a lot of my stuff is like, I need to be in meetings that span time zones, which requires me to be somewhat stationary. And it's fun, but at the same time, it, it, it leads your partner to be like, my God, can we close the door? But then the Wi-Fi goes out and it's, oh my God. yeah, it's all of the challenges of like work from home, but amplified when you're a, a loud person like I am. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
Your wife has a business. You want to promote her business on here? What does she do? Yeah, <laughs> she does a she does a, a business called Revive, which she is. It's this whole concept about just like making happy, fun, like lighthearted things. She does tie dye. She does these cute little ornaments. I'm really proud of her. She's got a great little Instagram redot vibe uh, LLC, and it's a cool business. She's she really seems to have a knack for just designing fun, beautiful things. And I am not an artist. I, I, when you were saying that earlier, I got such a kick out of it because I see that in you. I see that creativity and I, I see that desire to express through some sort of art form. And I am like, not that guy. I just like, I like <laughs> moments where I can fish and be with my dogs, but I am pretty plain Jane vanilla and I get that. But it's also like, I'm at a, I am at a point in my life now where I've accepted, like, I'm really happy doing those things. I'm yeah. really happy to stand in a river with water to my waist and like not catch a fish, but listen to the water rush around oh, me. Oh yeah, you're turning your brain off. Like you have to find those things. <laughs> I guess I, listeners, last night I texted Chris and I was like, Hey, like what's your email address? Cause I did send him the link. And then he told me his email address. <laughs> I was laughing cause it was like his name and he wrote, I'm vanilla in human form. <laughs> It's okay. And I, I think I would have been like concerned about that years ago, but now I've, I went through, I I went through a period in my life and I admittedly, I'm still dealing with some of this, the self doubt that I think a lot of people do when they're a young imposter syndrome, boy, you are not kidding. And being a youngish executive is always tough because I look at myself and I go, boy, I still have so much to learn. But then I talk to the younger people on my team and they're like, oh, I'm learning so much. And I'm like, oh boy, like this is wild because I, you know, I'm 39 years old. I got into this industry basically at 22 on the nose. And I still think that there's just a mountain for me to learn. There's certainly a, a, there are good things for me to teach and I'm excited to do that. But a huge amount of things for me still left to learn. You know, it's interesting. I, as I get older, it's, it's probably been the last two years. I had imposter syndrome for so long. I still do sometimes, but it starts to fade away a little bit. And you always have this um, desire to learn and this understanding that you never can know everything. And that always remains. And you always are going to like the imposter syndrome goes away, but the, the desire to learn and understand that you don't know everything is still there. But what's interesting about getting older um, and I love is that you kind of settle into this confidence this like um, this self, it's like an awareness that like, no, I do yeah. know shit and I do deserve this seat at this table and I do have things to offer. And then people start to see you the way you're projecting out. And it's 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 something that happens. I don't know. Maybe it happens for people when they're younger, but it didn't happen for me until like my 40s, <laughs> like my early 40s. Like I'm in my early 40s now, but like we're all of a sudden now I'm like, oh, shit, I'm the shit all right. And you don't have the confidence before that. And like, I, I, I do very much enjoy that. And I think it's, it's a great wisdom that comes uh, as you get older. And I wouldn't go back. I honestly, I wouldn't, I, re I very much enjoy getting older. I, I would agree. I have in the last handful of years, I feel like I'm actually turning into the person, not so much that I hoped, but was expecting to turn into. I, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a sensitivity to the way I think now that I'm not sure was going to happen because I've, and this is a challenge for me still today is to, to slow down, take a moment, appreciate what is actually going on around me because this is an intense line of work 
And mm-hmm. which probably sounds silly to people, right? They hear like you sell whiskey for a living, but let me tell you, no. anything that is a capital project is an intensive line of work. That's the mm-hmm. reality of it. Yeah, and I I think that like um like I don't know my friends or family or anything when they when they when I talk about what I do, uh, and how many people I talk to in a day, and like how many states I I am like touch points in, and it's it's it's, it's a, it, there's a level of insanity to it, which. Um, I know it's hard to quantify for people that aren't in our business, but um, I wonder with all this newfound wisdom that you have, do you have any um, advice for people starting out in our business um, that you, you, you know, would have given to your, a younger version of yourself? A hundred percent. I, well, and I think I did this and I would venture to say it's why I've had some level of success, but ask questions, ask so many questions. Do not you know, if, if people say, hey, this winemaker, this distillery, you know, person, this this whiskey maker, this blender is going to be here for like a short thing and it's a Thursday night and you're like, oh, do I really want to go back out? Go out, go listen. You will pick up so many good things. If you don't know how to do things like pricing or programming, even if it's not your job, take two minutes to sit with your trade development manager if you're at a wholesaler that has one or sit with the owner of your bar or restaurant if you work there and ask, like, how do we price things? How do we know what to do? Because those sort of things are so enormously impactful to your development in this industry because it's going to show that even if even if you don't know how to do the things yourself, showing an interest in how to learn how to do them tends to set the stage for like, this person is ambitious and wants to become mm-hmm. a bigger part of what we are doing. Yeah, you're you're laying the path for yourself. And honestly, you don't know what you don't know. And it's not until you Absolutely. start to ask questions that you realize and yeah, for sure. What's what's your uh, what's your plan? Like world domination, you're going to start your <laughs> brand and then hire me. I don't know. Like what's the plan? <laughs> yeah, I I I batted around the idea of starting my own brand a couple of years ago. I remember you and I had had a conversation about this and I was really keen on it. And went through a little bit of the ringer of like, what is it like to raise capital and to keep, you know, a band of people that are only linked by a commercial interest in an idea. You know, when, <laughs> when you are trying to do something yourself, you have an interest in the idea at a philosophical level. You, you like anyone, you have an idea or you have an interest in it at a commercialized level, but you're doing it. My hope would be, and, and as it should be for all things, because you believe in it and it it is an emotional connection to something for you. And when you start to go out and raise money, you realize that that's often not the case for everyone else because in a day and age where spirit companies, wine companies, beer companies are getting acquired for these really, what I would argue at this point, difficult to justify valuations, you start to get a sense of like, people are speculating in this industry. I mean, you and I together can look at like what's going on right now in tequila and just the sheer volume of new brands that have come through the marketplace. And it's, you can't tell me that that shelf can sustain that level of growth long-term. I I don't believe it for a second. Yeah. So you have to have a reason for being that isn't, well, we did this because we had money and we could. The reason needs to be significantly more genuine and heartfelt Mm -hmm. because I, one of the things that is the great part about a growing and thriving industry, which the spirit industry is in this really sort of epic period of growth, is it also really finely tunes people's bullshit detectors. <laughs> so people now are very savvy to being like, this feels really craven and non-genuine. There's nothing here. Why should I support this when 
you know, this other producer came in and I can see exactly how this product impacts the local area where it's being produced, but also like I'm going to be able to give my consumers or my customers something that gets them excited and connects them to the brand. And it's delicious. I mean, it is wild to think that there was a time and place where you would hear people, and this is like an open secret in the whiskey industry, where people would be like, you know, we're putting this out right now, and in a couple of years, we're really excited because the liquid's only getting better and better. And I look at that, and I just laugh, and I'm like, the if your idea of the mountaintop is great liquid, you're doomed. Like, yeah. great liquid is the first step on a long and difficult journey. But if you don't make great liquid, just don't do it. There's no point. I mean... I have been able to work at places over the last 15 years between Gordon and McPhail, Westland, and Barrel, where everything that we make, I genuinely believe is delicious. I think we make great product because these teams and these companies are full of people that give a shit. And give a shit is like this quality that you must have to succeed. But I also still see an unfortunate amount of this industry where it's people that are very much in it because it's like, We'll get in and we'll get out quick. And it's like, yeah, that's snake not oil the salesman. point. It's snake yeah. oil salesman, Chris. Like, I, if I had a, oh my God, I, I wish there was a career where I could be like um like a booze psychic of some sort because I <laughs> one of my special skills and talents is I can look at a product being pitched, whether it's at a distributor or whatever, and I could say instant closeout. Like I have the... I'm a, I'm a hundred percent of the time. I've, I'm like spot on on things. Like I remember when I worked at the distributor, when um, you know different suppliers would send stuff for consideration, and our former employer, our former boss, would always be like, "What do you think of this?" And I would look at it and I'd ask the price and I'd taste it. I was almost always right. Like I like it, I, I don't know. I need that job. You, you guys want a product? You want to know if it's going to work or not? Just ask me. Just send it to me. I'll yeah, tell you. It, it, that's it, it's called being a consultant, and there's great money in that line of work Dang. if you're willing to kiss an enormous amount of frogs. Ugh. I feel like I do that already now, so I don't think I have any more bandwidth for more frogs in my life. Um, but yeah, so to to your point, just tasting good or something just tasting good does not make it sustainable does not make Th- it a that good- is literally the entry point yeah, that is like yeah step one have something <laughs> that doesn't taste like garbage step two make sure you're making it in a way that people aren't going to find out that it is garbage because <laughs> then you're back yeah. to step one <laughs> like uh yeah conceptually there's a whole ecosystem around this idea that you have that has to exist and be sustainable um and, but, but also yeah. it's it's be genuine it's it is The thing that you are the most, and this is any brand, the thing that you are most afraid of people finding out will be the first thing they find out. So either get comfortable with how to explain why it is this thing exists or is this way Mm -hmm. or don't do it. But there's not really a lot of wiggle room to the other side, which is like, just hope that they don't find out. I mean, we now have Instagram accounts that their entire job is to go through the TTB, which is effectively the, the the regulator for the alcohol industry. When we want to create a new product, we have to submit the label and submit what it is. And it goes through this process. But because it's a federal agency, it's entirely public. Like you, John Q. Public, can go on this website and you can do a public cola search and see any item that is coming out that has not yet come out. And like, I laugh because... We put these things out in the, into the cola search and then it's like on the website way before that anyone else starts to recognize that that product is even ours. And it's wild to see 
that that's like now a part of the thing where it's like you want the scoop. So like we'll be at a I've I've had this happen. I've been at a whiskey festival. We've sent in a cola on something. I don't realize that the cola has gone in because compliance or ops did it. And then like the first question at the festival is, hey, when does this item come out? And I'll be like, I don't think we're talking about this yet, but (laughs) interesting that you already know that it's coming. That's wild. And I mean, like to your point uh, about, about the industry and like finding things out, like if you look about like the tequila space, like how many especially now there's so many tequilas and there's so many celebrity tequilas and there's so many like brands and now there's websites dedicated a hundred percent to just like taking them down and like finding out how they're being made and what they're putting in them and like it's like a non-starter yep it's it's become this sort of sub industry and and i'm not sure it's a good or a bad thing which is always tough because listen transparency is a great thing right there's no better disinfectant than sunshine but then there's also this element where it's like, I don't want to tear things down for the sake of being petty because that's not a good thing. Just because, listen, ju- to assume that all celebrity tequila or all celebrity anything is shit because it's celebrity driven is nonsense. That's right. crazy. Yeah, that's there irritating are, too. Yeah, go, go. I would encourage anyone that believes that to go work at a company that is struggling to drive awareness and realizing that someone that has an enormous personal brand platform can be really impactful and really helpful. But if your only reason for being is that it's ex-celebrity, then yeah, there's probably going to be a real challenge there. Yeah, especially if they're not actually personally, in, they're looking at it as a paycheck. Because there yes. are several that way that will remain nameless on this on this podcast, uh, but that have celebrity influencers attached to them who literally don't care about tequila or the process or anything. They're just like, money, please. <laughs> like, yep. Where's my paycheck? Like waiting for the day that a bigger company purchases it. Like, and it's, ugh, and it's, it's irritating and that brand won't be alone. Won't be around long-term for sure. No, or, almost or, certainly not. Yeah. I mean, or, or it will, and it'll be owned by somebody else and then nobody will care about it anymore. And then they'll ride it until it's in the ground. That's usually what happens. <laughs> Hang on a second. Hang on a second. I have very limited amount of time now because my, my small human, <laughs> decided that she's done your mini being patient. me yeah she's done being patient done being patient so i have a question for you yeah what's your question what is the okay you are obviously significantly closer to the wine industry because of your background than i am what is the thing that i should be drinking right now like what is the thing Oof. that's different or new that i should get excited about in wine specifically because when you've got a house full of whiskey sometimes you want something that's not above 15 percent abv yeah yeah no i hear that and i have obviously lots of spirits in my house too but um so the the wine question is hard because new is relative in the wine world um there's there's not like a whole lot of reinventing the wheel when it comes to wine like where there's a lot more science and interesting things happening I think in spirits on a regular basis like you get the cool kids that are pushing natural wine and orange wine and all that stuff but like I I bristle it the natural wine thing because most wine is natural like it, it, you just gotta know where to look it's a marketing term that's used against a lot of people anyways I I don't know I think like what I I'll tell you what I like I like um I like drinking like gamay and like slightly lower alcohol reds with a chill on them uh, I love Lambrusco because I'm a trashy Italian um <laughs> but I think like <laughs> you can't go wrong like my whole thing with wine is Drink what you like and don't listen to anybody. Who cares? Like the life is too short to listen to other people. 
you listen to your palate and and just keep learning and growing and trying new things and not be closed off to like the one time you had that one thing and then you didn't like it and then you just write everything off that's from that place um I think that's the fun thing about wine is there's no there's no things to run out of you will always be able to find something new um so like I had some Croatian wine recently that was very cool Um, I think like look to countries that you maybe like get out of the regular circle, you know, get out of the stuff that's like mainstream that we get here on a regular basis. Get out of the the regions that we're familiar with. That's that's what I would say, because like when I went to um, Italy and then I went to Greece this summer for a little bit. I mean, I was just drinking Greek wine the entire time I was there. And I was like, oh, man, this there's it's it's rad. There's like so many cool things. So I would just say, like, explore the sections of the store that you're not familiar with. Like that's. 100% 100% of the time. Um, and then you'll be surprised by, I don't know, flavors and things that are interesting to you that you weren't familiar with before. And when in doubt, fried chicken and champagne. High low. Yeah, I feel like that's a no brainer. I, I will say, of take it from someone now that I, I guess at this point, I could make an argument that I'm a career whiskey person, mm-hmm. because it's been 15 ish years of like really heavy focus on whiskey. I think what's sort of funny about that is when I, when I think about what is the biggest barrier for whiskey compared to other spirit categories or frankly other drink categories is that it is a big barrier to entry, right? Like I, you know, I can go into a wine shop and I love going to wine shops, God, because people that are into wine, love a good story. They care. They're into it. Like they're really passionate. And you and I, I think have a couple of wine shops that we both like going to that are relatively local to us that I can think about. And what's awesome about those places is like, you're really going to get a good understanding of what they're into. And you can walk out with a killer bottle of wine for 20 bucks. And the barrier to entry in unique spirits tends to be is that they're getting pricier because everything is getting more expensive from a production perspective. And that is, I get it, that is a huge obstacle that people need to be sensitive to. And everyone's got a different sensitivity to pricing than others. Mm But there's something about wine where it's like, you give me a an out of this world experience for like 20, 30 bucks on a bottle of wine and you'll have me forever because yeah. it's just such a treat. And, and you know, I love the the thing I love about spirits is the thing that often frustrates me about spirits is that most spirits, if they're well stored when they're opened and then sealed and then open and sealed, they, they tend to be relatively consistent. Some people are more sensitive to oxidation than others, but effectively they're pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. But a bottle of wine is like, it's a snapshot, it's right? It's a moment You've got in time. <laughs> X, you have X minutes, hours, seconds yep. to drink yep. that thing and have it at peak. And ironically, it gets better at times if you let it open and breathe comparatively to the bottle that you're just like pop the cork, glug the glass and get done. Yeah. And I, I find that so fun. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, um, in the, the coursework for the WSIT three for spirits, um, I really didn't understand pricing until I understood process. And I think like for somebody who might look at a bottle of whiskey, that's $60. I'm like, Jesus Christ, $60 for this bottle of whiskey. That's the same size as this bottle of wine that's like $20. But then when you think, when you learn the process and you see how much base material it takes to get like an ounce of spirit or distill it, and that's not even like the continuing process of post distillation operations that you have to do and then barreling and blending and all. It's like yeah. the process is so much more rigorous and intense and long 
and you need so much more to produce so little. Um, when you understand that, then the pricing makes a little bit more sense. Um, so for those of you that might struggle with like why good spirits are expensive, like I, I recommend reading a little bit about distillation and then you'll be like, oh, all right, I get it. Um, and also depending on what you're making it with, you know, like yep. um, some of those materials are pricier than others. There, I, I, the line we use at Westland consistently with people when they would ask why Westland single malt was more expensive than bourbon was just at a very basic level, right? <laughs> one, corn is the most heavily subsidized crop in America because mm-hmm. I, at, at one point, and it may or may not be higher now, so forgive me, but six out of every 10 items in a grocery store utilized a corn byproduct, mm-hmm. which is insane. And it also makes you realize that if corn were sold for what it probably should cost, everything would be infinitely more expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's subsidized for a variety of reasons. But, you know, barley, right, standard two-row pale malt barley, which is sort of the quintessential aspect of what the brewing and distilling industry use, right? If you make single malt whiskey, you've got to use pale, you you need to use malted barley. Mm -hmm. That stuff is oftentimes about 5x at a base raw material price. And yet the same product isn't five times more expensive than a basic corn whiskey. So it's, you know, there's like anyone that's listening to this, that's rolling their eyes going, well, there's marketing there. Of course there is. There's always going to be those elements, but it also just goes to show like it is, I think it's wonderful that the industry is getting more savvy to where these things come from, who is growing the grain. We're seeing a huge rise in the distiller farmer mentality, which I Mm -hmm. think is just awesome. Well, listen, you're a peach. (laughs) And I appreciate you. <laughs> I appreciate you doing this podcast with me. And I think we're very overdue for like a beer or a lunch or a whiskey uh, in person. So all of those things. I, I am still out. tickled when people go, we'd like to have you on and not just talk about the thing that you work for, which, you know, <laughs> often you become this sort of like mouthpiece of the brand. But actually, I, you know, I've got a pretty unique path in, in some ways, and I think I've got a perspective that is somewhat differentiated. So getting an opportunity to go and share it with your audience is always a, a bit of a pleasure. And I, I will say this genuinely, getting to watch your career unfold, knowing you from back at the wholesale days <laughs> to your supplier days to doing this has been fascinating because you have really turned into, I think you always were, but I think now the rest of the universe is getting to see it, just how thoughtful you are. And it is a pleasure to be your friend. I'm Aww. genuinely appreciative of it. Go on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. That's such a nice compliment. And um, yeah, well, you're the best. Thank you so much. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.